Amen. You may be seated as you're taking your seats. If you turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, we conclude 1 Samuel chapter 10 today. So we'll be beginning with verse 17. Let's give our attention once again to the beautiful and the glorious and the perfect word of the Lord. Verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up, Israel, out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore... Present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Maturites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. And when they sought him, he couldn't be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and he laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. The word of God for the people of God. I want you to picture a scene with me. The scene is this. It's a little league game. Well, let's make it even smaller. It's a t-ball game. And you can imagine all the little ones with their uniforms. And, you know, the, the ones who are batting are pretty much into it. But the ones who've had to go out into the field... Not necessarily. Particularly those in the outfield. Some of them could be down on the ground looking for worms and ants. And some of them can be just looking around at the sky. And you know how kids oftentimes are. They have short attention spans. Well, I've got a niece and her son. Let's just say he's got an attention problem. And... I was down with mom and dad just recently for about a day and a half, and we were talking about my niece's son, Hampton. I said, how's he doing? I said, well, he's doing, he's doing better. Uh, and uh, is, is he playing any sport? Yeah, he's playing soccer, and we're going to one of his soccer games. Well, how's he doing with soccer? Well, they said he's doing a lot better than he was with t-ball. Uh, his attention's gotten a little bit better. And then they recounted one of the... Uh, t-ball games and said Hampton had batted and Hampton had now went out into the field and uh, as usual he lost attention in the game 
And that particular day, he saw a little friend, a little girlfriend. She was not on the field. She was in the park around the field. And all of a sudden, when it was time for them to come in to bat, well, he came so far and then he detoured. And off into the park he went. Nobody paid much attention. They didn't notice it until it was time for Hampton to bat. And they're all looking around, where is Hampton? And he and his little friend, no telling what they were doing, probably playing in a stream looking for toads. I, I don't know. But where was Hampton? That's something of our story today, but it's not because of an attention problem that Saul is in hiding. He, he can't be found. This is a, a fascinating little story. It's about, yeah, it's about Saul, and, and yes, it's about Samuel, and yes, it's about the Israelites. And we're going to tell that story, uh, but we're not going to tell it through the lens of one of those characters. We're going to tell the story through the lens of the other character who is here in this text. Who is that other character? He's the, he's the character who's in every story. He's the character who is being revealed upon every page of this holy book. Who is that character? The Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, the God of us, his people. Let's look at this story through God, through what this story tells us about him. It tells us many, I think, wonderful truths. The first one that I want you to see is uh, see God's pursuing word, God's pursuing word. God keeps coming with this word to Israel. He comes, keeps coming with this word to Israel. Samuel has called this national assembly together at Mizpah, right? And what, what had, had been in the dark for at least some in the, in the previous verses now is about to be revealed. They're about to have their king presented in public. This was a grand affair, the announcement of a king. Pop and circumstance, right? And in such occasions, with such occasions, you need nice flowery rhetoric. You need decorum, right? They don't get that. They get a fiery old preacher. And the fiery old preacher preaches a two-point sermon with a very pointed application. And see in his words, Samuel's words that we see in verses 18 and 19. See in his words the dogged, pursuing word of the living God that keeps coming at those people who bear his covenant name, that they are supposed to be his. His word keeps pursuing them. It keeps coming at them, reminding them of their sin and guilt, Reminding them of what they have done and who they've done it against. Reminding them of all that he has done for them and yet their rejection of him. And so long as they remain unrepentant, if that word keeps coming to them, if that word keeps being preached, that's an opportunity to repent. It's a measure of God's grace. It's an additional opportunity for God's people to confess their sins and to repent of those sins and to trust in the Lord. And this preacher had hard words to preach. True preachers always do. True pre preachers in this fallen world always have hard 
words to preach. We cannot say peace, peace when there is no peace. I can't smile at you with this million dollar smile and act as if all is well when oftentimes there are sins that need to be dealt with and that there is this thing that we actually call sin. Faithful preachers, yes, must, in, it must preach encouraging words of blessing. We're given this wonderful task. Jim and I have this amazing task of proclaiming to you week after week the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is hope for sinners. And that hope is found in none other than Jesus Christ. Would you, would you repent of your sins and trust in him? But that good news, that gospel is not truly good if we do not see it against the backdrop of the bad news. And what is the bad news? We, like the Israelites of old, so oftentimes reject our God and reject our identity as God's people. The message of love without law isn't love. It isn't love. Or as Ralph Davis puts it wonderfully, Israel's God may love us too much to be nice. Israel's God may love us too much to, to be nice. That's what we see in verses 18 and 19. Second thing I want you to notice, you're beholding that your, your God is a God who proclaims his truth doggedly towards you. But next I want you to see God's powerful control. His powerful control of all things. So powerful, so minute. So much so that there really truly is not such a thing as chance. Chance is no thing. What had been revealed to Saul, what had been done in secret, the anointing ceremony, was now made public to a faithless people in Israel to see. And how would they see it? Well, they would draw lots. They would draw lots to find a new king, even though they don't yet know that that's why they're drawing lots. They don't know that yet. They're just brought together as a national assembly. Now let's cast lots. Let's draw knots. lots. And if they were thinking, they may have thought about the story of long ago, told to us in Joshua. When God called his people together and they, they cast lots then, and they found the one who was guilty. And his name was Achan. And maybe that's why Samuel is hiding among the baggage. He doesn't know exactly what's going on. Why are, why are we casting lots again? Well, as this story shows us, even when they're, maybe we put it in these terms, even as they were drawing straws, Who's in control? God. Every step of the way. Every step of the way. Let's draw straws. Which tribe will it be from? Benjamin. Let's draw straws. Which clan of Benjamin will it be? The Maturites. Let's draw straws. Which man of that clan will it be? Saul. The very one that we've already known, God had chosen. Now that's being manifested 
to all of Israel. God is in control of everything, even that which looks like it's just by chance. You got one in 12 odds here, you know. God is in control. And if that's the case, let me ask you, can he handle your dilemmas? Can he handle your struggles? Can he handle your plight? Of course he can. But he'll always do it in his way. His way. And that might not be the way you would have chosen. Behold your God, brothers and sisters. He is all-powerful. Nothing happens by chance. And he is unfolding his plan for his people, for you. Third thing I want you to see. I want you to see God's precise choice. Not only is he guiding and controlling everything, every step along the way, through his powerful providence, he's doing so according to his precise, eternal, and good choice. And his choice here is that there would be this man by the name of Saul who would be what the people had actually asked for. He had chosen from all eternity that a tall, handsome country bumpkin, timid or maybe even afraid, he had chosen Saul. And maybe again Saul's thinking, I don't know what's going on here. This doesn't sound good. They're choosing by lots. Uh, They may choose me, and what are they going to do with me? Maybe maybe I am going to face the wrath of God because of Israel rejecting God. The rest of the story hasn't yet been told. But in the selection process, God is methodically moving to a very precise point. His name was Saul, the son of Kish. Brothers and sisters, behold your God. Your God is not a God of vague generalities. He knows you by name. And he has a precise plan for you. Fourth, I want you to see God's uh, prerequisite revelation. God's prerequisite revelation. It's an amazing story, isn't it? God is giving the Israelites what they wanted. God is giving them what they have been pining for. That God is giving them one who's going to eventually become a terrible monarch, right? And that becoming a terrible monarch is going to be, in, in, in essence, a judgment upon them. Yes, yes, yes. And yet, he is also giving them one who will deliver them from the Philistines. He is giving to them one who will defeat their enemies. He is giving them Saul. But where is he? He's hiding. He's in the baggage. And like the runaway donkeys that he couldn't find, they can't find him. And even in all this, see that they are totally dependent on God. On God telling them where Saul was. On God finding for them their donkey-chasing new king. They are absolutely dependent upon the word of God. And what does he do? He gives it. Verse 22. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Brothers and sisters, behold your God. Behold your God. He is there 
and he is not silent. He speaks. He, and, and, and to you, to us, he's not merely said, there he is. To you, to us, he has given to us this entire word that leads us not to a donkey-chasing king hiding among the baggage, timid or afraid. Who does he lead us to through every word in this book? He leads us to the king who stared hell and death in the face and took on the hell and death that we all deserve on the cross and drank the cup of God's wrath to its dregs. If that's what this is, how dare we ever be nonchalant about it? How dare we ever just let this sit and gather dust? This is God's gift to you. He is, he is there and he is not silent and he's speaking to you through this word. Take it up. Take it up. Fifth, and quickly, see God's precious law. Remember earlier, uh, Samuel, he was righteously angry at the people of them wanting a king. And he told them, this is what kings do. This is what they think are their rights and their duties, right? He tells them about that. And in light of that, I find it a beautiful thing that here we see him doing what? Verse 25. Verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. He is giving them God's law about kings. Not what kings want, but what God says of kings. Of their rights and their duties. God's law. You know this to be the case in your study of history and your, your understanding of monarchs and rulers in this world today. Monarchs and rulers oftentimes try to place themselves what? Below the law or above the law? Above the law. They want to make law, right? That other people must abide by, but that they don't. Well, Samuel of old is saying and writing down what God says about kings. And he gives God's law. And he is stepping in and he's saying basically what a, a, a fellow who would be named after him would say thousands of years later, a fellow by the name of Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish Puritan, who wrote a famous book called Lex Rex. The law is king. The law is king. God's law reigns over all rulers and monarchs. They must bend the knee to it. And what I want you to see here is God just being gracious to the people. I've already told you what kings really want to do and what, they, what they're going to try to do, but I'm also going to put before you what God says they must do. Why? Because I am the God who has redeemed you out of Egypt. And my law is good. And if you're resisting my law, then never expect things to go well. Heed my law out of thanksgiving for all that I have done for you, and you'll taste how precious and sweet it is. Lastly, see God's polarizing servant. God's polarizing servant. They pull him out from the baggage, right? 
And when he unfurls himself, when he stands up, he's what? Towering above them. Here he is, this tall, handsome, impressive guy. The ladies were probably swooning. The guys were saying, man, I wish I was that stout and ripped and that handsome. They're just all, wow. They're impressed. Verse 23. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. We got what we wanted. Now we got somebody like the other nations. And my, ours might even be more handsome than theirs. Taller than theirs. Stronger than theirs. They're impressed. Well, not everybody. Not everybody. Notice down a little bit further, 26. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. Such is the heart of sinful man. Give him what he wants and he's still not satisfied. What struck me here in this passage, it's not the worthless rabble. We always have the worthless rabble, right? We may find ourselves a, a part of that worthless rabble. What struck me was that they rejected such an impressive guy, humanly speaking. Such a, they, they reject this this powerful, tall, handsome guy. What were they looking for? Such a man that God had clearly chosen and put into this holy office of king. And if a man like that were, were to be rejected, what about the one of whom we are told he had no form or majesty? that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. And then that struck me, and made me focus on the very last verses of chapter 10. It said of Saul, but he held his peace. And that drives me back to that passage I just quoted. Go with me, Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he himself bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed. For our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we're healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet... He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He didn't cry out. Let me pause here. He didn't cry out, Father, this isn't fair. I haven't sinned against you. I've been perfectly obedient to you. I have kept your law. I don't deserve this. No. Silent. Because he was bearing your just penalty for your sin. And you can't cry that out, can you? I can't. I can't say, God, it's not fair that you should punish me. I can't cry that out because I'm a sinner deserving of God's wrath and displeasure. I can't do it. Jesus could, but he didn't because he was standing in my place and yours. He did not open his mouth. He kept silent. He kept his peace. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation who who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people... And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, you. And he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Many. That includes you if you're trusting in Christ. And he shall bear their iniquity. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. He's making intercession now for you. He now is not holding his peace. 
He is speaking on your behalf. Heavenly Father, I bought them. They're mine. They're mine. Keep them. Protect them. Give to them eternal life. That's yours. Because your king is not Saul. Your king is Jesus. Let's pray. Left to our own accord, O Heavenly Father, we would be like that rabble, those worthless men and women. If left to our own accord, we would listen to the worthless rabble that would have us grumble and complain and choose the broad way that leads to destruction, the way of living for self. So we ask, by your sovereign grace, make us as those men and women of valor of old, whose hearts you touch, so that we follow after King Jesus. This is our plea, and we ask it in his name. Amen. We're called to trust in King Jesus, not in ourselves. Please take your hymnal now and turn to that great old hymn, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Number 679, let us stand.